Welcome to 50 Shades of Wealth, Confessions of a Real Estate Investor, the show where you'll learn the real estate investing secrets of the pros. Your host, Sarah Jung, pulls back the curtain and shows you how to build wealth with real estate investing. Welcome to 50 Shades of Wealth, Confessions of a Real Estate Investor. This is the show where we talk about the good, bad, and ugly when it comes to real estate investing, and we just discuss strategies for building long-term wealth through education and personal growth. I'm your host, Sarah Jung, and I'm the CEO and founder of Legacy Bloom Investments. And today, I am really excited to bring a guest on my show, John Fortes. John and I actually met about a year ago in Dallas at an investor conference, and I was always really impressed with John's ability to just share information. He was so gracious as I was building my real estate syndication business to just you know share all the information that he could. So I was so impressed with his success. And I'm very happy to have him on my show today. A little bit about John. Uh, John and his wife and their two beautiful children live just south of Boston in the south shore of Massachusetts. John is also known as the Passive Investor Consultant, where he founded the Fortis Company, which partners with working professionals seeking to invest in commercial family apartments because they don't have the desire or the time to own real estate or fully operate it. By leveraging John's experience, he has helped families invest in over 70 million in multifamily investments that's allowed them to secure financial security, preserve and grow their wealth, as well as compound their investments as they achieve their financial independence. John is also the host of the Pass Investor Show podcast and showcases the value of investing in real estate funds to provide a true hands-off investing audio experience. The show has become one of the hottest real estate podcasts on iTunes for working professionals looking for a hands-off approach to investing in real estate syndications. He also loves spending time with his family. And another fun fact about John is that he also enjoys refereeing high-level basketball games. So, John, I'm so happy that you joined my show today. I appreciate your time and being here. Tell us how you got involved in real estate investing. Thank you for having me, Sarah. First of all, before we move on, anybody listens to the show, please rate and review the show. It helps Sarah a ton to be able to have her show put in front of the right audience. Oh, thank you, John, for that little plug. (laughs) I appreciate you. Thank you for having me on. I got started in real estate two years ago, but before that, I had five years of uh, analysis, paralysis by analysis, right? (laughs) So I kept reviewing things and I was learning the stock market stumbled upon real estate because of the value of my home by doing renovations and work and proceeded to go ahead and buy a investment property. Investment property strategy was to be able to buy something using the Burr strategy, the buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and then repeat. And then what really happened was I bought something safe and I bought something turnkey. Uh, I like that strategy. It's cash flowing today. I bought it correctly. And the reason why is at the end of the day, I'm a safe investor. I'm a, I'm a singles and doubles type of investor. And that's a baseball analogy that I'm just trying to hit for singles and doubles. I'm not trying <laughs> to hit for the home run. What, what happened from there was <laughs> when we were about to close on that, I turned to my wife, I said, hey, I think we should scale. We should look into multifamily and, and go that route. And it made sense to her by saying, more doors, less roofs. And she was like, as long as you put in the work to understand the process. And I said, it's similar to real estate that we already done. It's just doing it on a bigger scale. And 
total the logic is investors eventually get there anyways. Mm-hmm. So they usually scale because if you want to do 30 to 50 single families, yeah, you know, that's kind of daunting. And there's little steps in. Basically, after 10, it gets tricky, right? So mm-hmm. you have to start Right, because of the financing, you can only finance so many of those. Absolutely. So started uh, looking into multifamily, educated myself, bought some educational platforms. And then next thing you know, five months from there, we are investing as a joint venture in a 62 unit. About five months from there, first syndication. And then about seven months from there, a second syndication. And since then, 18 months on us, on our first syndication, we have exited from that first syndication investment, gave back our investors a 1.5 multiplier. At the end of the day, that was right in the middle of COVID. So our oh, investors wow. were very happy, right? Very happy with that return and, you know, understanding. And before that, it was still cash flowing at 9%. So wow. it was a nice great job. investment. Yeah, it was a great investment. Either way, it was, we're, if we kept it, we still had 9% cash flow to our investors. And if we exited, why hold it for the remaining four years just to get an extra 50% on that equity? Yeah. It, we felt like it was a smart decision, especially if people are going to throw money at you. So why not, right? So with the minimum res- renovations that we had already done into the asset on the value add opportunity that it was, why go ahead and do all the re- rest of the work mm-hmm. when someone else will come in and do it if they're paying sure. a, you know, pretty much a premium? So John, we had um, one of the topics that I wanted to focus on today was setting up a fund. And, and we had talked about this a little bit. And I wanted to educate our listeners on what a fund is. And, you know, we are both involved in real estate syndication where we, we pull other investors' money together into a real estate deal. And that's typically, syndication is going to be in a one-off type of deal, right? So if you have an apartment, we're going to raise capital to go into that specific asset. But let's talk about a fund. What is the difference between a fund and then setting up a singular real estate syndication? Awesome. Great question. So a regular syndication is... Uh, Sarah, your your company identifies the asset, you put it on a contract. Now you go ahead and you're doing a due diligence and all of that. In the meantime, you're offering it out to your investors and they decide if they want to contribute or not. If your investors have already vetted you, they already understand that the criteria is whatever your criteria is. Let's just put it at value add opportunities. Now, your, your investors are us- usually used to seeing these value-add opportunities. That's what your business model is. You're not into development. You're not into anything else. You're strictly multifamily value-add. They put one in front of you, decide to invest in the syndication. All right, awesome. We raise the capital. I'm going to go through with it. We raise it. We close it. We're off and running. How is that different from the fund? Well, in the fund, you're not going to see the opportunities in the beginning. You're going to give the firm, the benefit of the doubt to find these value-add opportunities or wherever, wherever the structure of the fund is, if it's a blind fund or whatever. But if you're a multifamily investment firm, pretty much know that the fund is going to be used towards multifamily. So for instance, if you're a B and C asset, all right, cool. You know that your investments are going to be in Bs and Cs. And your fund can go ahead and allow up to multiple opportunities. So for instance, 
$10 million fund. You invest in five projects at $2 million piece. I'm just throwing those numbers out there. Mm-hmm. Your investment of $100,000 in a syndication versus $100,000 in a fund is well diversified. You're leveraging the experience of the operators. Meanwhile, your one investment in the syndication, you're picking deal by deal. So how many deals are you actually sourcing through to make that investment as opposed to leveraging the firm on the fund that's sourcing, let's say a small firm is sourcing 50 deals every month. That's 49 more deals than you looked at to invest in that deal, right? Mm -hmm. So let's just play that out. It's diversifying. It's 1K1 at the end of the year, as opposed to uh, say I invested in multiple syndications that day, that year. I got I to gotta retrieve, let's say, two to three to four to five, however investments I've made of K1s to go ahead and file mm. my taxes. So investing with a firm that offers a fund is very appealing, beneficial, and um, easier for investors, especially if they just want to be passive at the end of the day. So that brings up a good point. You say with the K1s, you know, because yeah, I mean, we would typically send out a K1 per asset for that particular property versus just having one K1 from the firm, right? From the fund. Tell me about depreciation. So are investors able to take advantage of depreciation when they invest in a fund? Absolutely. Similar to a syndication, a fund is structured and set up by and drawn up by syndication attorneys. So you are passing along the deferred maintenance and all, well, not the deferred maintenance, I'm sorry, the depreciation along to the investors. You want to make your fund investor friendly. You do want to make sure that investors are benefiting from it because after all, they're investing in real estate for a reason similar to you. So you want to make it appealing to them. So if you're not passing along to the, the depreciation, what's the point of investing in, the, in real estate in general. So yes, you are passing that along through the K-1s as well. So as the investments come through, obviously your CPA, this, the fund CPA will handle all this. They will parse all that out and parse it out from the GP to the individual investors. Yeah. With the depreciation too, are you still able to do the a cost segregation studies so that you can accelerate all that depreciation up front, just like you would in a normal syndication? Absolutely. So the fund allows you to go ahead and acquire the assets efficiently without having to raise it on deal by deal. Everything else is operated similar to a syndication. And because it's more diversified, when one thing that comes to mind is some investors, you know, they like to see what asset they're investing in. And then, you know, you might have other investors that are more interested in the returns and just are looking for kind of an asset profile, uh, like whether it's A, B or C class or, you know, specific types of returns. Do you have a suggestion as far as like an investor, kind of the profile of an investor who would be a good fit for a fund versus like a syndication? Absolutely. And that's another great question. So a syndication for an investor that wants to handpick the deals, a lot of investors sometimes even want to underwrite the deal before they go ahead and invest in it. That's fine. If that's your thing, that's your thing. Now, the profile for an investor that wants to invest in a fund is someone that is very busy. And let's just say that the working professional is very good at what they're doing, but they have a ton of capital. They don't want to create another job or spend more time on finding investments on one-off syndications because it's beneficial for them to invest with a firm that's already practicing that model. So the ideal profile for someone for a fund is 
maybe they have some 401k money that they're sitting around that they know they're already going to pass through, uh, invest with uh, through uh, syndications or real estate in general. So throwing in a fund that's diversified instead of them having to do it themselves. That's great. It's going back to the 401k. Maybe they're a high net worth individual that's a doctor, a lawyer. The world absolutely needs their services. Great. Continue doing what you love and invest with the fund. It, the fund allows you to invest more capital. For instance, if you have 500000 and you want to split it up with five different syndications at 100000 apiece, you have to look at five deals, more than five deals, but I'll just, mm-hmm. I'll just put it at five for now and then decide to make the investment. The fund allows you to invest, let's say, 400000 and you go ahead and invest 400000 Now, if one deal doesn't pop in that fund, it's supported by the others that the fund's invested in. Now, if you invested in one deal with 100000 in the scenario that I used in the beginning, and that didn't work, the deal's done. You might mm-hmm. lose your capital. Mm-hmm. But if you invested at 100000 in the fund in the beginning that I talked about, and it's well diversified, and it's invested in five different funds, I mean, five different investments, if one didn't work, it's still supported by the rest of the four. Got it. So it sounds like an investor that's going into a fund, you're really trusting kind of the, the management team or the, the company that's handling the fund and their expertise and their ability to find good deals. Is that the case? or So, you know, with any investment, you're relying on the management team or property manager, whoever's operating it, right? But when you're in a fund, it sounds like to me, so you're not necessarily the investor doesn't necessarily have direct contact with that specific asset. So how important is it, how much more important is it to rely on the company that, that is operating this fund, essentially? That's a great question, Sarah. It's similar to how, for instance, Sarah, if you came to me and you said, John, I have this, you know, we built a relationship and we already had that going. And now you say, hey, John, I have this opportunity for you to invest in. Uh, remember what we talked about before? Boom, 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 boom. All right, cool. That's the one-off syndication. And let me take a look at it and boom, boom, boom. The fund is the same way. You already, I, I already vetted you, Sarah. So I'm comfortable with you. And I know what your firm is all about. Your firm is strictly value-add opportunities. Let's say BC, let's say eight prefs. And let's just say all the metrics are there. And I know what you already bring to the table. I've seen a few of your syndications already. All right, awesome. Now, if you came to me and said, John, I'm creating this fund. It's going to be invested in the typical deals that you see me already bring to you. Are you interested? It's an easier sell because it's less work for me to go ahead and sit through countless webinars to find the deal. Or maybe I've already invested in all the opportunities you brought me. So I already have that relationship and trust with you. So that, that basically sums it up where... People are creating blind pools and say, hey, invest in this. And people are throwing money at it. But if you have a direct fund where it's saying this fund is strictly used for multifamily purposes only in these targeted markets, I'm a little bit more comfortable investing in something, knowing where my capital is going regarding targeted markets, what it's used for. I'm not a development guy. So if you brought me a fund that says, John, we're going to use this fund to do development you know, in these targeted markets. Sarah, I love the target markets, but I'm not into development. Remember, I said I'm a singles and doubles guy. I like to know where I'm going, right? Mm-hmm. And I like to invest in what I understand. So if you brought me a fund that said, John, it's a multifamily targeted, no less than 50 units, 
It's a value add opportunities. It has to have a value add component to it, similar to all the syndications you've looked at and previously invested in. Are you interested in learning more? Well, Sarah, show me what you have. Show me what the fund is, is all about. And I'm more inclined to invest in because you mean to tell me, Sarah, if I invest in one offering, I'm diversified. And on top of that, I'm only sitting down and looking at it one time. All right, cool. Let me see the newsletters and, and distributions after that. Because I'm pretty much sold on that aspect. Mm-hmm. And having to sit through countless and countless and countless opportunities myself, which I'm already doing as a firm on my end, and you are too, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the average investor who's a busy, busy professional, who's looking at alternative investments as a branch and extension of their financial team, they might not have the time to want to sit through countless, countless webinars and presentations. Sure. So that definitely sounds like there has to be a good fit. Just like with any investment, you want your you want to make sure that you're taking in investors that will be a good fit for the fund as well, right? From your side of things. So it sounds like it's also important to vet your investor who's coming into your fund to make sure that they're a good fit. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Okay. So Sarah, I, I know that investors are vetting you as a sponsor, as they should. That's the number one rule. Mm-hmm. Vet the sponsor, know how to vet the sponsor. But you are also vetting the investor to understand what type of investment meets their criteria. So at the end of the day, Sarah, if we sat down and your criteria is in alignment with my criteria, you're most likely to invest with me. But if your criteria is more of a self-storage, I have friends in the industry that I can refer you to. Sure. That- that dabble in self-storage. That's not my go-to, but I'd be happy to make the connection and introduction for you to, to get them, maybe to give them a look or something like that. You know, sure. as, we, as we dabble in the industry, we come across everybody and we know who's doing what. And uh, we know who's actually bringing the opportunities to the table. We know who's performing and we know who's not. So any type of introduction for someone that wants to do self-storage or mobile home parks, we probably already know people that are doing that. It's just, that's not my cup of tea. So I focus on multifamily value add and that's it. But yeah, so I'm vetting the investor just as they are vetting me. Yeah. And I think that's so important to make sure that you, the sponsor and the investor's goals are aligned to make sure that at the end of the day, everybody is happy. So on a singular syndication, you know, we typically have a whole period of about five years in a fund. How is that different? So is there a, do you have terms in the fund as far as an investor goes in that they're going to get their money back in X amount of years or, or how does that work? The fund is set up as a 10 year hold. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to go the whole 10 years. It doesn't, and it could, but here's the thing. If the fund is set up where it has a four year investment period, where we am, we're investing in opportunities in four years. So we'll hope to exhaust all of the capital of the fund in four years in regards to finding investments. What does that look like? It takes three to seven years of holding time for us to exit. That's how we're, un- we're underwriting. If someone comes to us early and says, we want to purchase this at whatever stupid price that they're suggesting, our intent, even though we love to hold, if someone's throwing capital at you, and you're getting, your, 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 your metrics are bouncing, it's only right to sell. It's, it's making a smart decision as opposed to not selling, right? So mm-hmm. we do what's best for the fund. And 
we try to give back capital after four years. Anywhere after three to four years of the fund starting, as exit as projects start to exit, we return capital. We don't reinvest the capital that's coming out of the fund. For instance, if we exited, we don't give back a portion and then reinvest that into a new asset. No, we exit and we give we distribute everything back to the investors. And the reason why is we have that fund, and as that fund is starting to age, we have another fund, and as that fund is starting to age, we create another fund. So the、I、goal、see. is to create funds for investors, because believe it or not, investors probably will come asking about fund one when you're on fund four. You're listening to Fifty Shades of Wealth: Confessions of a Real Estate Investor. Want a free guide to behind-the-scenes secrets of real estate investing? Head on over to legacybloom.com and claim your free book today. You had mentioned, and by the way, John, thanks for sharing all this information, <laughs> taking all these questions. I mean, because these are questions that not only I think of, but I know that I think investors would also think of. What is a blind pool? Because you mentioned blind pools a couple times, and how does that fit into having a fund? Yeah, absolutely. So there's pretty much three types of funds, right? So there's the blind pool where you invest and you have no idea what the fund will go ahead and invest in. It leaves it open. So this is a blind real estate fund. I can go buy self storage. I can go buy mobile、mm. parks. I can go buy mobile commercial and triple N storefronts, and then I can go buy apartments. Right? All right. Great. Everything under the sun that that is real estate. I sure. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense.、Right? And then there's a direct and specific. If you really say this is exactly what we're gonna do, right? And you make it real specific to whatever it is. Let's say it's multifamily for the sake of the podcast, and you say we're only looking at assets that are value add components, and being real direct, right? You can、mm-hmm. set it up that way, and then you can set it up everywhere and be in between those two. So being really strict and direct, as opposed to really loose and Flexible, right? So you can kind of put it in the middle where you're a little bit flexible, but you know it's strictly one asset type. So, for instance, if you say anything multifamily component, and your investors are comfortable with that, that's fine. But it gives you a little bit of flexibility, even though your criteria is value add component.、It、doesn't mean you're gonna go and buy a multifamily development, right? So, like I said, if that's not your criteria, your bread and butter, you're probably not gonna do it. And as far as the target returns, so in a singular syndication, you know, typically that asset is, you know, we project to have specific returns in three to five years, and with the you know target IRR and cash on cash return. In a fund, is there any commitment to meeting that specific criteria? And what if those projections are not met? Is there any is there any difference with that, or or is it is it similar where you know you're targeting those returns and you may not meet the returns? Is there any difference with that in a fund versus just the syndication? Yeah, that's a great question. So the best way to answer that is the fund is structured in the beginning. Say, let's say the fund is just eight percent preferred returns, and then you can see what the fees are to the general manager. As a fund upfront with no no investments going into the fund as you're raising the fund, how do you project that out? Well, you say eight percent preferred returns. And then everything after that is split with the general partnership, twenty percent carried interest. What does that look like? So once the eight percent preferred returns is met, everything is split. Twenty percent goes to the manager, eighty percent back to the investors, and、okay. that's for the life of the fund. 
you could also structure it so that when you meet certain hurdles, let's say once a 20% IRR is met, I'm just using a high number out there. Now that carried interest goes to 50-50. It's all about how it's met, how it's structured. But for the sake of the fund, I would always keep it at 20% or 25%. You can either do it from 20 to 25, which I've seen. Uh, 25 is probably on the high end, but 20, 20 is on the uh, average end. So it's similar structure to a hedge fund where it's a 20 and two. What that means is 20% carried interest after the preferred return. And the two is the asset management fee. And if you want to go on about fees, there could be an onboarding fee of 2%, similar to an acquisition fee. So typically you have the onboarding fee and then you have an asset management fee. Do, is there always asset management fees or does it just depend on the fund? So since the fund is investing in these one-off, uh, syn- not syndications, these one-off investments. So the fund invests as itself into these projects, these one-off investments. The fund is used to do that. All the returns go back to the fund. And now the fund is now distributed to the investors in the general partnership. So at the end of the day, if you're looking to JV with someone, you got to make sure that you're JVing with enough proceeds to go ahead back to the fund to pay the investors. You're not just going to JV just for the sake of JV. And the JV partnership has to have some criteria too. So that's where it doesn't get complicated. It just gets real direct. So okay. if you have partners that are finding opportunities that meet your, your fund focus, for, for instance, Sarah, if your team found something and you know you didn't have the capital right up front, but you know I had a $10 million fund and you're saying, John, I need 1.5 for this deal. And if it all checks out and it meets my criteria, we have an opportunity to go ahead and JV for the percentage of the fund. Hmm. And, and that's where it is. So that's kind of how it works. So all the proceeds will go back to the fund and then it's split on a quarterly basis back to the investors. When it comes to distributions, what is the kind of the rule of thumb as far as paying out distributions? Is it monthly or quarterly or how does, how, what's typical? As the fund is going, you could structure it where in the beginning it's quarterly. And then as you start exhausting the funds and everything is, for instance, you've exhausted all $10 million on that scenario in year two. And now every investment's kicking and firing. After two years or maybe say two and a half years, now that the proceeds are starting to just come back consistently, the dividends, you can start moving from quarterly or you can keep it at quarterly to monthly. It all depends on what you want to do and what you're what works best for your accountant team. So uh, mm-hmm. investors do un- do like the fact that it's it could be monthly, but also they have to understand that it may stay quarterly too, because maybe sure. all the maybe all the exits and, and stuff, it starts to complicate things and you want to make sure you have everything lined up properly for your accountants, right? And um, that's where a, a good investor portal and an accountant team is helpful for you because now investors get to go ahead and track the fund through the portal. So Mm -hmm. that's really good on their end. And then your accountant team has everything that they need. If they're part of that portal, you can upload it to that as well and and, and provide them with all the documents. And then they'll upload everything for you at the end of the day. Or you can keep it off on a direct portal for themselves that the accountant team that already has it. Unless they are internal to your business and you have your own accountant team Mm -hmm. and now everything's in-house. You know, and you bring up something that is important as far as 
your, because you mentioned portal. And so what types of systems do you have set up for yourself, for your investors? You know, you mentioned a portal and is there any type of tools that you use that you find to be really helpful? Awesome. Yeah, that's a great question. So my investors, we have a, an investor portal. We have our private portal because it's great for documentation. It's great for allowing them to see the status and operations of the, of the actual investment. We do put our newsletters through there to keep them coming back to the portal for them to make sure that they get to see the status of their investment. And also we give them an offline tool. It's very, very, very easy to use tool. So if they have an investment with my company, with my firm, and they have an investment with a sponsor X, they're allowed to go ahead and use the tool. It's so easy to use. They get to put in the projected returns from the investment that they invested in. And then they get to actually calculate to see the real returns come in on a quarterly basis. If they do the math, if they're getting quarterly distributions, it's easier. They get to implement that return every quarter on it to see if it's on target to what the projections noted. Now, there's a couple of reasons why we do that. One, we want to be compared to other, other sponsors as well. We want our investments. We're not, we have nothing to hide. We're not trying to hide anything. We're complete transparency. But here's where the value is. It allows you to show what your investments are producing and actually accounting for right in real time. It also allows you to put investments against each other to see how it's actually performing and confirms your criteria in an investment as a power to maybe you had a decision to make between an investment in Tennessee and Alabama and what markets are producing better returns for you. So it allows you to see that, oh, investment A was in Tennessee, investment B, it was in Alabama. It allows you to pit them against each other and say, I got to make more investments in Alabama or Tennessee. Mm. It allows you to see that in real time because now you get to track and monitor it. And that's the offline tool that I offer my investors. That is amazing, John. I mean, I can see how, what, what a value add tool that would be for your investors. And just, you know, that transparency that you provide to your investors is very impressive. So let's, let's pivot a little bit on, on uh, our questions here because, you know, our show is about making confessions and, you know, sharing our experiences in real estate investing. So John, so I'm going to ask you, do you have a uh, confession that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, it was very scary in the beginning when I first started raising capital, reaching out to friends and family. I mean, it's just kind of, man, you didn't know how it was going to be accepted or not. And to hear them, to see them put yourself out there to, to start doing something that you never talked to them about in the past, uh, about money and uh, what is their relationship with money and mm. what are the types of investment? Like, it's really kind of a personal question to bring up. Mm -hmm. So you kind of got to warm up to it. You learn fast how to drive the conversation and how to basically come off in the conversation. Uh, at the end of the day, I don't want to, the right word here is manipulate my friends and family thinking that this is something that they have to do or whatever. It's, mm -hmm. I put it out there. And then they see what I'm doing and whether it's the first investment, second investment, third investment, the fund or whatever it is, they eventually come back and have the conversation with me because they're seeing what I'm doing and they're seeing how it's changing people's lives. And, and, and another thing too is I kind of look at the conversation as, as a twofold. It helps them start to look at their finances a little bit 
more refined.、Mm. Now, if they're compulsive spenders, they're probably not gonna have much to invest it with. But also, you gotta allow them to have tools and put it in front of them in regards to the the right information as far as criteria and strategies. As far as what do you do when you move on from a job, you now have an investment opportunity. Because you have a four hundred one k that you can self direct, but that whole process is daunting sometimes to the average investor because they're like, I "Mean I gotta, I gotta direct it." So when it's something where they have to manage their money, it's a different conversation、yeah. because, and it's a different feeling too. And I had to struggle with that really because, man, reaching out to people about money, it, it's not the normal everyday conversation <laughs> where. Hey, did you see last night's game? Sure. You know, <laughs> I mean, think about it. It's 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 money. People have a different relationship with it. Some people think that they don't have enough of it. Some people are clawing to hold every cent that they have. And I believe we've all been there. It's just now、sure. putting it out there and being comfortable putting it out there was a struggle for me because at the end of the day, did I want to come off as the the four one k guy? <laughs> You know what I mean, or did I want to come off as the investor that's helping? And depending on the conversations you're having, really can. Oh, John, John, hey, Sarah's the the four one k consultant. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm a I'm an investor. So seeing how the conversations can really turn you into something that some people think you are, but you aren't. At the end of the day,、yeah. so you know that was a struggle for me because it was. It was something I had to get. You know, I had to shift through. I had to、yeah. make sure I had my own identity before reaching out to them because I wanted to be looked at as an investor. And then having the experience to leverage that and and, and come back with now makes those conversations a little bit easier than in the beginning.、Sure. Because even even if I had a, a team behind me, it was still a hard conversation. Like, how'd you get involved in this? And then walking them through my story—that was the easy part. But when we brought it back to capital, that was very, very difficult. Yeah, I, and I can see that. And thanks for sharing that with us. I can definitely relate. You're raising capital, and when you're, especially when you're first starting out, and you're going to your friends and family, and and you know, just like you, you know, there's people that that have no idea that you were. Getting into that, that you were doing that, and they're like, "What? What are you doing?" And then, you know, then you're bringing up the whole topic of money, and it can be a very sensitive topic to some people. And so, I I can relate to that because you know, there are certain instances where I don't want to feel like, you know, I'm just asking for somebody's money, and instead, you know, I'm providing, you know, you're providing an opportunity for an investor, but how that's communicated sometimes. It, it can be done in a way so that you're not coming off as just you know asking you know for for money or for a favor or or for any of that right. It's not from a selfish standpoint. But I think when you're when you're first starting out, it is difficult to have those conversations, and it can be a little awkward, especially if that's not something that you normally talk about, especially in those closer circles. Absolutely, and there's another piece to that. It, it's fair. I had a lot of fear in the beginning too. To be honest, it was just kind of. It really puts something in front of you where you find out what's the real barrier that's holding you、mm. back, right?、Mm-hmm. So you know, there's there's a saying that they say, you know, you, you don't talk about money and you don't talk about politics, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> end of the day, I rather you know just be real 
And, you know, here, here's, the, here's the thing, too. When I was having conversations with people and telling them, like, the minimum investment was 50000 it was kind of putting a barrier in front of me because they were like, man, 50000 man, that's a lot of money. Like, that's, you know, and I didn't want to look at every person as they didn't have the 50000 I wanted to put it out there as, like you said, an opportunity. And that was the fear and the barrier that was holding me back because I got so many no's because that was either a lot of capital or there wasn't sure. going to give, give up that capital or whatever their internal fear was. Sure. It was projected onto me. And now because it was projected on me, I wasn't asking you in those conversations. So I had mm-hmm. to conquer and overcome that to say, hey, Sarah's a new person. She might be interested and kind of do a lot of self-talk kind of hype myself up, you know, offer this opportunity to this person because it didn't work out on the last one, but you never know on this one. So that really helped me as well. Yeah. You know, and the, that, that self-talk that we, that little voice inside our head, you know, that can say so many negative things. I think we all, we all go through that and it really limits us. Unfortunately, how have you from, you know, from your, when you began and, you know, you had that fear, how have you processed through that and and kind of where where are you at today now as far as having those conversations and raising capital? That's a great question. Usually I have a lot of referrals coming to me. So the conversations are pretty easier these days. People reach out to me because they see something I'm doing on social media or uh, part of groups that I, I join or lunch and learns and I'm starting to roll out the fund. So I've really been inundated with that. So most of the conversations I've had are with real serious committed investors these days. And so it's a little bit easier because they understand my track record. They understand what I'm trying to do. Sure. So basically, it's just them vetting me and I'm vetting them at that point. It's great conversations. It's, I'm meeting a lot of great people. It, it's fun. And I, and I do like to remind them saying, hey, I'm not trying to replace anybody on your financial team. I'm not trying to replace your a tax accountant. I'm not trying to replace your CPA, your, your, whoever you are with your financial extension. I'm just trying to be another tool as an alternative investment. And I'm looking to be a team member with them. So if they need any sure. documentation from my firm, I'll be happy to pass that along as well as if I needed any documentation from their firms to their team members as well. So, I mean, it just, it's a reminder of that because at the end of the day, a lot of people might associate with, hey, if I got to invest with them, I'm not trying to take them out of the stock market. If they're comfortable investing in the stock market, that's their option. It's however they are comfortable with investing. I'm not trying to convince you otherwise. I'm not trying to say, look at the stock market today, this and that. I'm not trying to use fear mongering at all. I'm just trying to say, hey, I'm here. This is what I offer and this is what we do. And that's how it usually attracts back to me. So you, you're setting up your fund. And by the way, congratulations on all your successes. I, you know, I, I follow you on social media and, you know, and we kind of have, you know, kind of go in the same cir- similar circles. And so congratulations just on, on just the success that you've had and just all the, just your, uh, your platform and your website looks great. What motivates you at the end of the day, uh, you know, setting up real estate syndication funds, you know, investing, what, what's kind of behind all that? What motivates you to do that? Uh, well, it, it's funny because I got into this because I wanted to create some passive income because I'm a basketball referee. I wanted to have <laughs> the freedom to go ahead and do the games that I wanted to do. I do a high level games at the NCAA level. Oh, wow. And at the end of the day, I needed availability. So I, I have a background in IT, IT consultant. So at the end of the day, what I did was I, I started investing and 
now I'm doing this uh, on a full-time basis and I get to go to the games I, I, on a consistent basis and I don't have any blocks or issues and stuff like that. So as part of that, that was the one of the main motivations and being present with my family home more and being able to work at home, you know, and have my office at the house. That helps because I'm just, I could walk out the door and see my family and now doing things and focus and align with my family a little bit more. So if I have schedules that I need to line up, I can ask my wife if we have any plans or stuff like that. I have a lot of freedom to be able to go ahead and dive into doing things that I wouldn't have the luxury of doing if I didn't get into this. And that's the freedom that I'm trying to provide as an alternative investment with investors. So it's very gratifying. It's very important. I get to create a lot of content, uh, I guess they call it, like investment ideas, investment 101 series, the podcast, the blogs, the videos, everything I get to create has been a blessing. It's been fun because it's sometimes I just create it because it's a thought right on the spot. And I think investors would benefit from it. Or, Or sometimes it's a podcast that we're recording today. And I know I'm not releasing it for 14, 15 weeks. I'll take the video and be able to chop up that two minutes of that conversation that Sarah said something that I thought was so insightful and I put it on the Investor 101 page and it has no podcast to refer to until that podcast app actually airs and then I link it to the podcast. So I have an Investor 101 page where it's strictly videos of podcasts that have been released or not released and it's a segment just a nugget of something that I found was beneficial that helps investors. And, you know, with the blog writing as well, I, I get to write things on exactly what I think investors want to know. It's not things that I'm trying to create. It's something that I, I feel like as a passive investor myself, if I had known that earlier, it would have been beneficial for me. So that's kind of the lens I look through when I'm creating all the content. Yeah, you know, and and I saw that on your website. And uh, what is your website address, by the way, so people know how to reach you? Awesome. So we are the Fortes Company. It is easy to find at johnfortes.com, F-O-R-T-E-S, or fortesco.com, F-O-R-T-E-S-C-O.com. So yeah, either one can, can be found that way. Nice. So please reach out to John. Check out his website. He's got a lot of great content on there. One last question, John, before we wrap up here, what piece of advice would you give to a newer investor or just to whether they're new or a seasoned investor, but any, uh, any advice that you could give out there, something that um, you feel you'd like to share that would be important? Awesome. If you already are listening to this, you probably have an idea that you are multifamily or real estate focused. So you already have some sort of a criteria built in. If you really defined your criteria, start reaching out to the people that could help make your life easier as investing. And now you're moving into the, to the Nike saying, just do it, right? So <laughs> reach out, put yourself in position to even have a conversation because at the end of the day, if you're going to sign up for a website and you can just do stuff on your own, that's great. But investing, as far as investing in real estate, it's more like you have to have a conversation with someone. So put yourself in a conversation with someone that's doing it at another level or a higher level or a firm that's already practicing what you already want to achieve. Invest with them if you, find, if you find it comfortable. Or if you don't, find the right firm that you feel comfortable with that you want to invest with. Make your life easier. 
Don't make it harder. Don't create another job. Invest passively if you if you feel like that's the option for you. Or if you want to be active, go buy a bunch of three families, single families, and and find out how how the industry works, how how real estate works, and you know, landlord the tenants and and manage the operations and the the maintenance, and then find out if that's the the strategy you want to go with. And maybe you do want to do that. I don't want to take that away from anybody. I think that if they want to go ahead and manage their own assets, great. But if you want to passively invest, find the firm that's going to do it. And you know, there's a difference between a big corporate firm and then the small little boutique firms. You know, it, it all depends on what level of service you want. And one thing that I've realized is sometimes we leave something small to go for the bigger company only to come back to the smaller thing. But sometimes the bigger company works out for us, right? Sure. So end of the day, find out what fits you because we live in a world where it's the luxury of options. Yeah, that is for sure. John, you know, I super appreciate your time and you have provided such great nuggets of information, um, especially on talking about the fund. And so I hope that for our listeners that that was helpful and valuable. I mean, I definitely learned a lot today. You're just rocking it. So just keep up the good work. Appreciate the kind words. And, uh, hey, if, it, if you guys are listening, go and rate this podcast, rate and review. Oh, thanks. Thanks, John. Well, hey, so let's, we're going to wrap this up here. And again, John, thank you so much for your time. Listeners, thank you so much for listening in. And until next time, we will keep investing. Thanks for listening to 50 Shades of Wealth, Confessions of a Real Estate Investor with Sarah Jung. Make sure to visit us at LegacyBloom.com where you can join our investor club and grab a free copy of Sarah's latest book. And if you like the show, don't forget to leave us a quick review. Be sure to tune in next time as Sarah pulls back the curtain once again and shares more Confessions of a Real Estate Investor.